First of all, I'm going to read from Psalm number 7. And here God's, words, <coughs> God's word writes this. O Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord, my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have done evil to him who is at peace with me or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. And that verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And then, <coughs> pardon me, we turn to Romans chapter 8 and we read from verses 1 to verses 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. <clears throat> the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so, though controlled by the sinful nature. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, whoever, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead would also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, 
Abba Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. May we pray together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we meet before you this morning. We come into your very presence. And Father, in your presence, we read those parts of your precious word we shared this morning. Father, bless the reading of your word now in our hearts and lives and minds. Father, bless your word to our understanding. And Father, in you may all the glory be given. And now, may the words of my lips and the thoughts and prayers of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, glorify your precious name, we pray now, in the power of your Holy Spirit, for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. We're looking in this series on what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're taking here this wonderful part of the letter of St. Paul to Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 to 17, which is talking about living in the Spirit. Because God's people are meant to be people who live in the Spirit. And when we live in the Spirit, so many things happen. We contradict the world. We contradict the world with all its values. We contradict the culture of our age. And perhaps, you know, as we reminded last Sunday, we live in an era where there is so much pressure upon God's people from the spirit of the age. There was a time when there was a broadly Christian culture in our land, and therefore that gave some protection in a sense, but now we are very exposed, we are very vulnerable to the culture of the age, and we combat the culture of the age by walking in the spirit of God and not in the spirit of the age. And we come to this wonderful letter of St. Paul to the Romans, and it's used by God so mightily over all the centuries. The great Augustine of Hippo was in the garden. He heard a voice of a little girl saying to him, go in the house and read. He opened his Bible, and before that, he was leading a profligate life of sin and darkness. And he read the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, and he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Saviour. Martin Luther, that that downcast monk, read Romans. And when he realised that Romans is talking about the righteousness that comes from God in Jesus Christ, his life was transformed and he brought the gospel back to the world. And John Wesley, downhearted, miserable, a failed clergyman, he went unwillingly to a meeting Aldersgate Street where someone was reading the preface to Martin Luther's preface to the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. And Wesley says, My heart was tra- strangely warmed. I felt added trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And later on, in the 19th century, there were two brothers called Haldane and they were on the continent. And they heard students from a theological college talking in the, in, the, in the background. 
and they realised those students were largely ignorant of what the gospel means. That's nothing new under the sun, is there, sadly? And they had a Bible class on the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. And because of that, a mighty revival took place on the continent. God speaks to his people so powerfully from what Paul wrote in Romans. And, you know, in Romans chapter 8, he has this wonderful opening that says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, really, chapters 6 and 7 are a diversion that Paul brings in. You can almost put them in brackets, because in chapter 6, Paul's talking about the wonderful things Jesus Christ did. In chapter 7, he talks about what the law cannot possibly do, as he counters objections of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But what he's doing, really, in chapter 8 is, he's returning back to chapter 5, and talking about our wonderful, glorious security in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, chapter 5 begins by saying, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 8, Paul is able to say, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're looking this morning about walking in the Spirit, being changed from glory into glory to the people that God wants us to be. But there's a vital foundation first. Now, modern writer David Tripp has a very simplistic description of Romans 1 to 17. He says, first of all, it's about comfort. And then it's about a calling. Because you see, later in the verses we share in 1 to 17, Paul is calling us to walk in the Spirit, to have our lives changed day by day, to walk with God closer and closer every day of our lives. And that's an amazing task. It's a a glorious privilege. But we know we live still in the flesh. We have remaining sin in our lives that are the problem. And as we try to walk in the Spirit and walk in the light of God, Satan will attack us with our sins. And therefore, there's first of all a comfort. Before you have the call, you've got the comfort. And the comfort is in the first part of Romans chapter 8, where Paul is reminding us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And really, the whole of the chapter is about that there is no condemnation. And he ends the chapter by saying, there is no separation. If God is for us, who can be against us? How can can anyone contend against a living God? But the chapter 2 talks about being sanctified, becoming more holy, growing into the people that God wants us to be. I believe often in the modern church, dear, because of the pressures of the world in which we live, there is often a problem with what people have called the sanctification gap. Now, in many ways, we're very good at rejoicing, quite rightly, that we're saved by grace, that God has rescued us. He has forgiven our sins and given us a new life, a new hope in Jesus. Yes, we do that very well. Sometimes we're also very good at rejoicing at our hope of the glory of God, to when there will be new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, where all sin and darkness and sickness will be taken away. 
But sometimes we don't deal with a bit in the middle. It's called the here and now. And that's about people growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe a bit of extreme case, but I became aware of the sanctification gap quite vividly when I was a young teenager, a young Christian. I went to a church meeting. I think it was discussing Anglican Methodist unity, so tensions were flying quite high. And I remember quite visibly, an elderly gentleman spoke and made a point. He responded to by an elderly lady who said to him, shut your gob. <laughs> so I think there was quite a lot of scope there for sanctification, or perhaps a bit more, more fundamental. But Paul here is reminding us there is no condemnation. And he opens chapter 8, by two glorious blessings and promises. The first one is this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why? In in verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and of death. We're set free in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe it's... For those who want a more liturgical approach, and I'm not one of them, we're approaching the season called Lent shortly. And please, I, personally, I just don't do Lent. But I do honestly appreciate those who feel it's right to do so. But, you know, so often we get the wrong idea of Lent anyway. We see Lent only in terms of us giving up things, not doing certain things. But, you know, look back in Scripture to the passage of the, God, of the Bible that Lent really is all about. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and by the Lord Jesus Christ telling Satan to get lost by the power of the Word of God. And I ask if you do celebrate Lent, please, or whether you do or not, remember this glorious truth, the main Lesson is this. Lent is reminding us that through the power of the word of God, we can tell Satan to hop it. Because we know that as we try to walk in the spirit, to be the people that God would have us be, Satan would constantly try and attack all that we are and all that we do. Haven't you had a situation where you're trying to concentrate on the things of God? And in your mind, somebody who's really annoyed you during the week keeps coming back. I find this, you know, when I'm preparing a sermon, Satan will always try and attack by, oh, isn't that not that irritated little person been a nuisance during the week? And many other ways in which Satan will attack us. And Satan knows we have the problem of remaining sin. Thank God Jesus Christ has the answer. But Satan will constantly attack us by telling us that we are a sinner. How can we be forgiven? How can we have no condemnation because of the things that we do constantly in all of our lives? And Martin Luther had that problem. And you know, he did just what I mentioned about Lent. He defeated Satan constantly by the word of God. He quoted scripture to Satan. The thing is, Satan knows all about scripture, so with a powerful weapon to, to, to feed back to him. 
And Luther would go around the house, actually, and everywhere he was, he'd carry a knife. And he'd carve the words of Scripture everywhere he went. The dining table, Mrs. Luther didn't like it very much, but he did it. And Luther said this, When the devil says to you, you are a sinner, say this, Yes, I know I am a sinner. But what of it? There is one who died for me. His name is Jesus Christ. And where he is, I shall be also. In Jesus, we are now in Christ as we were in Adam. When Jesus died, we died. When Jesus rose, we rose. And we can proclaim no condemnation because of Jesus. Because our hope, our strength, our victory is not in our human performance, thank God, but it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know we sin. And as we walk in the Spirit, we deal with our sin. But we sin against love, no longer against the law. And as we move on in, Acts, in, sorry, in Romans chapter 8, Paul moves on to guide us as to how we can become sanctified, how we can be changed from glory into glory. But first of all, we've got to get this foundation right. Because unless we have assurance of salvation, then we cannot build anything upon that. And Satan will pick us off, no matter what we try and do. The, uh, the hymn puts it, the, the arm of flesh will fail you, ye dare not trust alone. And he in verses 3 and 4, Paul is telling us how God has done it in the Lord Jesus Christ. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. We cannot have assurance until we realize our salvation is entirely of God and God alone. In the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards made his profound statement. He said this, We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And Paul's telling us here that God did for us what the law could not possibly do. See, Paul tells us earlier, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But the law is a positive side, but a very negative side. It makes us aware of sin. Until the law of God confronts us, we do not know that sin is sin. But the law of God, by showing us what God's standards are, makes us aware of how we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And as John Whitfield put it, First, you go to Moses, to Mount Sinai, and hear the law. Then you go to Mount Zion. 
Because when we realise that the law tells us that there's nothing that we can do to, to, to find salvation by our own efforts, then we are trusting entirely, relying utterly on the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his Son to guarantee our salvation. God became incarnate in the likeness of our flesh. The Word became flesh. God condemned sin in Jesus. He paid the price. And why? That the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. For the Bible tells us the strength of sin is the law. And we're in Jesus Christ. We cease to be married to the law. We're going to be troubled by sin. But we're, not, we're no longer going to be married to it. For what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. We inherited our sin from Adam. And because we inherit our sin from Adam, we are doomed by our human nature to death, hell and destruction. But in Jesus Christ, we are renewed. As we were in Adam, we are now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the second Son of God became incarnate and took on our flesh, yet without sin, to die on the cross for our salvation that we might have peace with God. And Paul tells us this, and he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. And now Paul is having laid that glorious foundation that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now we can move on with that confidence to be the people that God wants us to be. And the Puritans put it in a wonderful way. They taught the doctrine of the imputed and the imparted righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. What they meant was this that when we come to know the Lord Jesus in all his fullness and love and might, that Jesus gives his righteousness to us. Now we sing the hymn, don't we, in Jesus, love of my soul. I am all unrighteousness. Thou art full of truth and grace. As a kind of a transaction takes place in our salvation, that Jesus gives all his righteousness to us. He paid the price on the cross at Calvary. In doing so, he gives all his righteousness to us. And when we receive him into our life, we give all our unrighteousness to him. But then, Paul's telling us here to grow, to walk in the Spirit. How do we do so? Well, it's like this. The Puritans taught to the doctrine of imparted righteousness that it's like when Jesus comes into our lives he enters our lives and because he is in our lives he continues to impart his righteousness 
into our very lives. It's like having a dazzling cloak around us. And as we wear that cloak more and more and more, it infuses into us the righteousness of God. As the hymn puts it, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are thy glorious dress, with flaming robes in these array, with joy shall I lift up my head. Now Paul goes on to tell us how we live according to the Spirit, what life in the Holy Spirit is. And you know, this part of Holy Scripture here is about life in the Spirit for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this morning, if I'm talking to anyone who is not yet in Christ Jesus, I pray that through the Word of God that you may be in Christ Jesus very soon indeed. As we look here as a people of God into what are all the wonderful benefits of being in Jesus Christ. And Paul says in verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And what's the problem today of the world in which we live? A world that's abandoned God so much and because of it our society is collapsing and it's integrating. Why? Because... People in our world today live according to the sinful nature with minds set on what that sinful nature desires. And to in verse 6, Paul adds further, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. When we come to Christ, our hearts are changed, our minds are changed too. See, again, what's wrong with our world? The mind of sinful man is death. All the human thinking, apart from Christ, leads to death. That's why in in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, their minds fell as well. Their minds became clouded by sin, so that for them, black is white, and white is black, and light is dark, and, and dark is light. And the mind of sinful man is death. It leads to death of the soul, death of destruction. And in verses 5 to 8, when Paul is telling us about this, he's not talking about two kinds of Christian. He's not talking about the party going, let's enjoy ourselves, let's enjoy sin to have a Christian. On the other hand, the spiritual Christian, no. Paul is talking here very clearly about those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are not in Christ Jesus. And he reminds us of this here in verse 9. You, therefore, are controlled, not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Now, in our lives, we have to deal with residual sin. We won't be free from sin until we are in glory. But being a Christian 
there is a very big difference indeed because God is now working in us. And Paul is differentiated between those who are in Christ Jesus and who are not. And now he speaks in verse 9 onwards to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, here it gets very personal, doesn't he? He says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And here's a promise in verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. And Paul's talking to Christians now and he's saying, look, Please, don't behave as though you were in the flesh anymore. Don't behave as though you were in in human nature. Don't behave as though your mind is in human nature because you're in Christ Jesus. And because I am in you now, you have the Spirit of God working in your life to combat sin, to change you, to allow God to work more and more in, in what you are doing. And the power of the resurrection is so great that he will also give life to our mortal bodies ultimately through the Spirit who lives in you. And we fight our battle. We do God's work, reminding it is not I, but it is Christ in me. Realise what we Ah, you know, Paul says in Philippians, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's scary, isn't it? But don't worry, Paul says too, for it is God who works in you, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And Jesus said in that great high priestly prayer, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are no longer under the law. No condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed with righteousness divine. And Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We have an obligation not to the sinful nature. Why have an obligation back to the flesh? It never did anything for us whatsoever. It can only bring us down and stop us being the people that God wants us to be. But we do have another obligation. We have an obligation to the Lord God. A debt we pay to him. Some of the old hymns put it so amazingly. My gracious God, I own thy right to every service I can pay and call it my supreme delight to hear thy dictates and obey. And the words of Augustus Top Lady, a debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. And finally, Robert Robinson. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, Bind my wandering heart to thee. And he also goes on, prone to wander, Lord, I leave it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it. Seal it from thy courts above. And the Bible here is calling us to live in the Spirit, to know the Spirit's in us. You see, what makes a difference now, it is because... The Spirit of the living God, that third person of the Holy Trinity, is in our lives, helping us, enabling us to change the people we would have us be, difficult as it can be many times in the world in which we live. The great Puritan John Owen once said that the vitality of the church depends upon the extent to which that we can mortify sin and kick sin out through Jesus Christ. And sanctification is about knowing the truth about ourselves and putting it into practice. It's self-examination. You know, the Jonathan Edwards in America in the 18th century, he came to Jesus Christ around 1721. And he realised that his Christian life would be a struggle. He was actually a very saintly person. He's a great example to us all. But he realised how, what a struggle the Christian life would be. And in the course of a year, he wrote down 70 resolutions for himself personally. The first one began by saying, I will do all to the glory of God and nothing else. And Jonathan Edwards, they weren't just on paper. Every week of his life, he would go through all those resolutions and measure himself to see how he was measuring up to what he resolved to enable him to walk in the spirit and be the kind of person that God wanted him to be. Brothers, sisters, we need to walk in the light of God. We need to be changed by God's Holy Spirit. We are all guilty of sins in our lives that God needs to take care of. We need to examine every conversation we had, every hurtful word we might have said. We might have to look at all of our church activities, all our meetings, and ask ourselves meetings, in our conduct in those, are they to the glory of God or not? 
and that God will gloriously change us. But finally, there's, a even great, there's another great motivation as Paul closes this section of Holy Scripture here. Paul says, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Not only does God's Holy Spirit dwell in all of our lives, but we know this. We've got the spirit of sonship. The spirit cries, Abba, Father, that we are children of God, that God has adopted us as his children. We're in a far higher state than Adam and Eve ever were because they knew God as friends. We know God as our Father, and when we pray, we're commanded to say our Father because of just that. We are the children of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. And when we come in Christ, we share in the glory of God. The spirit of the adoption is one that we know we may share in God's glory. And Jonathan Edward talks about the end for which God created the world. And his conclusion was, God created the world because he wanted to share himself, his love, his might and glory. First of all, within the Trinity, and then to the whole world, to share his glory in loving creation, to share his glory in our redemption in Jesus Christ. And when we realise we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, and walking in him and walking in the Holy Spirit, we know this, we're sharing in that glory of God. In the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed, he said this in verse 22, in John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Sharing in the glory of God, being one in him, one in the spirit, one with each other. And no wonder that Paul can end Romans chapter 8 by saying there's no separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And God calls us brothers and sisters in Christ, to grow more in him, to take our relationship with him more and more seriously, to examine all the areas of our lives that need to be changed and replace those areas of darkness with his glorious light. Shall we just pray together now? Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus came and died that we might live. 
We thank you that because he lived and rose again, there is no condemnation for those who are in you. Father, help us day by day and week by week to walk with you, to walk in your Holy Spirit, to know your Spirit is with us, helping us to change our lives, make us what we are meant to be. And Father, we pray that your word now would penetrate to all of our hearts and minds this morning, challenging us, renewing us, showing us where we should change, showing us where we should go. And Father, by your Spirit's powers, we, as the sons of God, we share in your glory. We rejoice in all you've given to us. Father, bless us now, we pray. Lead us on, build us up in your most holy faith. For our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.